Please turn with now to the New Testament and to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not found any who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let us pray. Lord, we need your help in understanding these things. Your word is so wonderful and so powerful, yet it is without your help above us, and it does not profit us viewing it through our sinful eyes and ears. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would reach down with your great power, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive the truth by which you will bless us this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come now to this section here in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. And it's a change of scene. We've been in the same place, in the same time, the same setting for some time. But now, finally, there's a change of scenery. Here we find Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and he is traveling to the, the border country between uh, the, the northern country of Galilee and Samaria. As you know, the basic idea is that, that uh, Galilee is in the north. It's sort of like the northeast. And then there's the, the south here. And in the middle of that would be sort of the Midlands, which in this case would be Samaria. And there's just a little sliver of land in the Kishon Valley that runs in between the two of them, this border country that didn't really properly belong to either. And this is the place that Jesus was traveling through on his way to Jerusalem. And in such border countries, as we know in the the border country with Scotland, we encounter people of both nationalities dwelling there, and so it happened that they found both Jews and Samaritans. They come to a village, and there they find a group of ten lepers, some Jews, some Samaritans. Now, you know that people with leprosy, even today, are cast out of normal society. Uh, There are still, to this day, leper colonies in places like India and so forth. And as fellow outcasts at the very, very lowest level, it sort of supersedes and takes precedence over every other barrier that could be. They can't get any lower. They can't be any more outcasts than they are. And so, what you know, they end up banding together as a sort of leper colony there in this border town. Now, the fact that they're all there together gives us this wonderful opportunity to see them and a sort of comparison how they react to Jesus. 
And as you know, there's no spoiling the story. We've just read it. You probably already know it. In fact, when when isn't a leper cleansed? They come into anybody comes into contact with Jesus. You know the end of the story. It's not it's not a surprise. It's very predictable. If there's leprosy, if there's disease, it can't survive in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that He's going to be healed, and so it was. Well, that's that's the end of the story, right? But, of course, we're here to learn something else. We're here to learn spiritually from this. And we learn, actually, from a particular Samaritan. Now, this is, I think, the third Samaritan we've encountered. There's a Samaritan woman in John 4. There's the good Samaritan in Luke 10. And there's a Samaritan leper here. And the thing about all these Samaritans, they, they didn't know much. They didn't grow up in the feet of some famous Pharisee, some famous rabbi who knew all, everything there was to know about the scriptures. You know the Samaritans, they were this half-breed people that didn't have the greatest of, of backgrounds really. And their religious education was very, very lacking. Yet Jesus uses them as a picture of a simple, uncomplicated faith. Of simply doing the things that they ought to do. When those who should have known much better failed to do those things. And that's the picture before us today. That's what we're going to learn. That, that is, in fact, the, the title of the sermon, Learning from the Samaritan Leper. Learning from the Samaritan Leper. It's a pretty simple story, actually. By the time I get through it, there, there's nothing amazing at, at all about what happened. It is merely what should have happened, but what didn't happen in nine out of ten cases. And, and that's why we need to learn from this one case. Learning from the Samaritan leper. And the three points are, 10, ask for mercy. Secondly, 1, return thanks and glory. Thirdly, 1, receive grace. 10, ask for mercy. 1, return thanks and glory. And 1, receive grace. Well, ten asked for mercy. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And there's a reason for that, of course. They were unclean in the worst sort of way. And they're absolutely forbidden to come near. And interestingly, it seems also that Jesus spoke to them at a distance. We don't have any indication that he actually came near Funny enough, you know, there's another story that we went through in Luke in which he touched the man with leprosy. That didn't happen to happen in, the, in this case. A little different in that way. But in verse 13, they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, is there any significance to this word master? That's overseer or chief rather than Lord? Maybe. We mentioned how there might have been such a thing with Peter. When he said master, and he used this word chief, and I mentioned that sometimes when people uh, don't really um, have a full understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this is the word that they they use. In fact, I looked at it again, and sure enough, uh, Jesus himself uses the word master in his parables as he's describing other people. He uses it dozens of times, but he doesn't use this word. He uses two different other words, actually, and doesn't use this word. So it's never on the lips of Jesus himself. And in every single time in which this word is used, there is something wrong. They have, they have misunderstood Jesus. There is a problem here. There is something deficient in their faith every last time. So probably, 
probably they don't really understand at this point who Jesus is. They've heard about him. They understand he's a miracle worker. Maybe they've heard about the, the other man that was cured of his leprosy. We don't know. But there's probably something deficient on him. But they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, chief, overseer. And when he saw them, he said to them, in verse 14, Go, show yourselves to the priest. Now, there, you see just how, how God and his providence chooses to deal with a particular people. In another situation, he actually goes and touches, and the, the healing happens right there. Sometimes he heals in other ways, and they're right there. And other times he heals from a, a distance, like the centurion. He says, I'm not worthy you even come under my roof. Just say the word, and he'll be healed. And sometimes he heals at a distance. And this time, he doesn't even say you're healed. He just says, go and, and go show yourself to the priest. Now, as I say, there is something. Now, we're going to learn mainly from the Samaritan leper, that one. But I think we're, there's something that we can learn even from all ten at this point, And that is their humility in asking for mercy. Their humility. You know, it's very much like the Pharisee and the tax collector, which I keep on bringing up the story that's so simple that makes it very clear. Here's one who is in his self-righteousness, thinks that he can earn something before God. He's the Pharisee, and he says, I'm, I thank you, I'm just not like those other people because I'm so wonderful. And the tax collector, the tax collector fully knowing his situation, there's no hiding, there's no pretense, he knows how bad he is, he knows what a rotten sinner he is. And he says, he beats his breast and he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he receives grace. He, he is the one who is saved and justified and the other one is not. Well, let me at least say for all ten of these that they have the humility to ask Jesus for mercy. That's a good thing. That's a, perhaps the advantage of their disease. It was unmistakable. They are their leprosy. They're, they're lepers. They're living among other lepers. They're cast out from polite society, and there's no pretense. It's actually a blessing. And when they encounter Jesus, every last one of them asks for mercy. That's a good thing. Well, now what is this go and show yourself to the priest? What is he saying? He's acting as if they should know something about that. He's acting as if they already know about this. And the answer is that they should. Certainly the Jews, maybe the Samaritans too, but at least the Jews would have known. We recall in our reading in Leviticus 14 that there is a long, detailed procedure for, the, when, for when lepers are cleansed. Now, keep in mind, this is not the procedure to cleanse a leper for the first instance it's when someone has been cleansed of leprosy they can go to the priest and in God's word and you think you know here's the Old Testament and the focus of the Old Testament for them would have been the, the, the first five books the Pentateuch and there in Leviticus nearly a whole chapter is given over for this, this, this procedure for after you're cleansed of leprosy and as I may have mentioned previously when it may have gone unused for the hundreds and hundreds of years until Jesus arrived on the scene. Because people just aren't cleansed of leprosy. Even today, it is an extremely difficult disease to cure. Back then, there was no cure for it, and no one was ever cured of leprosy until Jesus arrived on the scene. 
And so, of course, and you have this situation, and uh, this is the previous leper, or, or one just like the one also in Luke, in Matthew 8, 2. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He has that faith. And Jesus puts out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded, Leviticus 14, as a testimony to them. What testimony? Was it business as usual? The priest already has his list. You have to call quick after the holidays because everyone's signing up to get this ceremony. No! It was gathering dust. They'd never used it. They knew about it. They'd never used it. And here this man comes... And it is a testimony to them. It's a testimony to them. Because the Messiah had arrived on the scene. And that's what this is is here. Go show yourself to the priest. First one, and now this troop is going to show up in Jerusalem, has cleansed lepers, saying, that that procedure, we need that that done. It's an amazing thing. Well... Jesus simply tells them to show themselves to the priest. And so it was, as they went, they were cleansed. Now we have to say, you can learn even from all ten at this point. Not just the Samaritan, you can learn from all ten. They, had the, the, they, they asked for mercy, that's a good thing. They needed humility to do that. And, and they actually carried out what Jesus said. You remember that a proud man once in the Old Testament who was also a leper didn't want to do that. Right? He wanted to be healed right then and there by the prophet. And when the prophet said, go wash yourself in the river, he's, he's offended. He doesn't want to do that. He said, I thought he was just going to wave his hand or do something else and, and, and heal me. And he was too proud and he had to be convinced by his, by his advisors to carry this out. And he was healed as well. But these, these all ten of them go their way, on their way to Jerusalem. Remember, this is the way to Jerusalem, so they start heading there in front of Jesus, and they're healed before they get even very far. They ask for mercy, and the amazing thing is that all ten of them actually received mercy. Now, why is that useful for us? We're really focusing on the one Samaritan leper, but we can learn something from all of them. And the main thing I want us to know here is, let's just add this to our book, let's add this to our record, of which I've challenged you about in the past, you go and find a place in Scripture where someone in sincerity asked for mercy and didn't receive it from God. I keep looking. Every day I turn this Bible and I keep looking for a place where somebody has asked for mercy and didn't receive it, and I don't find it. Learn from that. Put that away in your memory banks. Put that in your heart. You'll need it. Ten ask for mercy, and they received it. Secondly, one return thanks and glory. Verse 15, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Now, it seemed, as I say, that this healing happened while they're not very far away. It's recorded as the, the way it was. It didn't say that tomorrow that happened. It didn't even say after some amount of time. It seemed as if they just started down the road, which is all that was, was being asked of them, and, and they were healed. 
You can just imagine the scenario. Those who are so heavy with this disease, you know, there are all sorts of manifestations, certainly including its deadening effect upon nerves or inability to feel pain. And and there as they're walking, these uh, perhaps missing little digits or whatnot, and and everything is restored. And they can feel everything as, as normal. They look at one another and their skin is renewed and they're, they're healed. And it was a good thing. It was a good thing that they had simply done what Jesus had told them before they'd actually seen that they were healed. But I want us to see that there would have been absolutely nothing preventing them from all returning to give thanks. They absolutely could have still carried out the thing that Jesus commanded them. They needed to do that. Of course they needed to go do this thing that was commanded in the law. That they needed to go to the priest and they needed to go through this, this ritual in the temple. Jesus is not being unreasonable when he's telling them to do something and then expecting something else entirely. It's only the reasonable implication of all this is that when it happens, that they should return thanks. But they didn't. These nine of them. Nine out of the ten just went their way. One returned to give thanks. Now this is the one. This is the one that we need to learn from. This is the one whose thanksgiving for this. And now just think about the situation of this man and probably the rest of them. Who knows how long they were there? Again, they've not. This isn't a situation of a very short time. It wasn't a. We don't have flu colonies or cold colonies. People have some minor illness that they're expecting to be healed from in a week's time. Okay, you have leper colonies where people are condemned to that situation for the rest of their lives. And no doubt there are those who, are, who had been there for years and years and years, perhaps decades. And how they dreamed of the possibility, however in, unlikely it might be, but how they would desire to be cleansed. And here they had... They had they had um, uh, decided to to give themselves over to this particular hope. They hadn't, all hope had not died. Perhaps, again, word of Jesus had reached them, and they asked for mercy, and they received it. But only one of them actually returns to give thanks for it. Now, that's the amazing thing. It's not really that, that one, the one Samaritan, that, that he was so amazing. Because Jesus is not amazed at the fact that he came. What is he amazed at? Jesus said, we're not, not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? He's, he's not amazed at the one coming. He's amazed at the nine for not coming. Because surely, surely, in all reasonable, any just a normal human reality, that surely they would want to return thanks, but they didn't. So unfortunately, this is what what sin looks like. They may have been cleansed of their leprosy, but those nine in their sin were unthankful to God. That is their situation. That's their problem. You know, we read in the New Testament that there, are, there is a time coming, it said, the time of the, towards the end, time really in which we all live in, the time between the, the resurrection and the return of Christ, in which the, the people are unthankful. That's what characterizes them. They're unthankful. That is what characterizes the heart 
that, has, that is not regenerated, a heart that is not God's, they are profoundly unthankful to God, even when they should be most thankful for things. The amazing thing is that the nine did not return. Even though in all, in all at rightful expectation, they surely should have been overflowing with thanksgiving. But this one, the one that we're supposed to learn from, he returned. And he, what did he do? He glorified God. That's the thing. He fell, he, with a loud voice, he glorified God and fell on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. He came and he returned thanks and glory. That's what we're all here for. You know that? It's good to be reminded of this. What's the first question of the catechism? And there's a reason why it's the first question, because it's something that should actually inform all of our lives. It, it should be the basic parameter in which we consider ourselves, the way in which we live our lives. It is to bring glory to God. You understand that that's our purpose? The purpose of the whole universe is to bring glory to God. But in particular, our purpose as human beings, men and women made in the image of God, is to glorify God. That's what we should be doing. And here, these nine, this, is, this was the whole scenario. It may well have been that in God's providence, all of them had, were, were, were given this terrible disease that this one day, they may have had it for years and years. They might have had it for 10, 20 years. And on this day, the day in which the Lord knew that they were going to be healed, now was their opportunity to glorify God. Nine of them passed on that opportunity. One of them, one of them returned to give thanks and glory. And he was a Samaritan. There's that again. He was a Samaritan. Why? Why is that important? Because the others should have known better. We don't know how many of them are Jews and how many of them are Samaritans. We don't know. But even if there's one Jew, he would have been, should have been the one to return to give thanks and glory because he knew this word of God. He knew God as, as uh, it didn't just know him at, uh, far off, a basic idea of God, but he knew him in detail through his revealed word of God. And yet, it wasn't a Jew. It was a Samaritan who's our example. And Jesus is saying, let's be at least as good as a Samaritan, just like he did with the, with the good Samaritan, saying, who loved his neighbor? The priest that should have known better? The Pharisee that should have known better? No, it's just a Samaritan who didn't know much, but at least did what is right in, in everyone's sight. This one Samaritan returned thanks and glory. Well, that was our second point. The third and final is that he re, this one also received grace. In verse 19, he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. How are we to understand that, that, that scenario, that your faith has made you well? Now, I want to say I'm not entirely happy with the translation, your faith has made you well. Because, first of all, this, this word is, is the same word that we use elsewhere for salvation. It's actually the word we get, you theology students ought to know, soteriology. That word for salvation, soteriology, that's, that's the same word being here. Your faith has saved you. That's, that's the more literal translation. 
Now, if we could be 100% certain that this was just a restatement of what had already happened, then we'd have to say, well, okay, then we don't mean save really. We just mean that, it's, that, it, that his faith has made him, him whole. Well, it's certainly done that. We know that. But it's done that for all the rest of them too. That's the thing. Right? Why is Jesus merely restating what has already happened for all the rest of them? Actually, if we're only talking about that level... All ten had faith, and, all, and in all ten cases, their faith had made them well. But I think that this one was saved spiritually as well. I think the word was well chosen. Jesus says, why didn't the other nine do as this one did to return and to give glory to, to God, right? They, they needed return to give glory to God. I thought they could just do that in Jerusalem, Right? He says, why didn't they return to give glory to God? And what does this man do when he returns to give glory to God? He falls down at Jesus' feet. And he's worshiping Jesus. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him like an angel would do. Why? Because he is God. And he was in the right place to return to give thanks and glory to God. He was in the right place to worship God, not Jerusalem, but Jesus, because he is the Son of God. Now, let me ask you. I think, see, I, I think this, this Samaritan now understands who Jesus is, right? Now, let me ask you the question. What happens to people who recognize that Jesus is God and worship him as such? What happens? According to the gospel, they're saved. We we went through this in Christian Explored Extra the the other night. It's so, so simple. Who are saved? Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe in the only begotten Son of God. It's John chapter 3. It's so simple. Each and every one of them is saved. And so I think that this man as well believed. And therefore, he was saved. Ten received mercy. But only one received grace. You know, any kind of healing, any act of, of human kindness, it, it is a mercy. Any sort of thing. Jesus didn't have to, to heal them. And in some sense, you know, no, none of us have to, has to help someone who's in need. The Lord has called us to do so, but we're not required sort of person to person to do that. And so they receive mercy in being healed. But one of them also received grace. Now, what do we say about that? Your faith has saved you. What does that mean? That's an interesting thing. And that, again, speaking of which, we had this interesting discussion Friday night at Sea Christianity Explored Extra about the nature of faith. The question is, why is it that faith is so important? Why is it that the difference between those who are saved and those who are not saved has everything just to do with faith? Why is it? Why not something else? Why not love? Why not one of the other things? The answer is, it's the only thing that is not properly a work of any kind. The only is because it's inherently focused on some object other than the person himself, right? So you're not saved by your works, your meritorious deeds, the things that you do, the things that you have in your hand. The thing that's different about faith is that it rests in an object that is other than you. And so we don't say your faith because it is a meritorious act before God because it earns you something has saved you. It's in the sense that your faith has connected you with the object that can bring you salvation. This man's faith has saved you. 
Now, I was reminded of the usefulness of defining what faith is. If that's true, if your faith has saved you, then it's really useful to know what, what faith, what saving faith looks like. And what we said was that faith is based in knowledge. It's not an empty faith. You can't believe in someone or something you don't know anything about. Okay, And God doesn't ask you to do that. It isn't a blind faith. Okay, It's not based on sight. That's true. But it is based on knowledge, hearing of the word of God. Okay, so there needs to be the, the hearing, and there needs to be a sent to it. It can't be that the word of God reaches you and, and you say, no thanks, or I don't believe that, obviously. The word of God reaches you and you say, yes, I, I, that's true. But then there's one last thing to it as well, and that is that you embrace this faith. That there, is, that there is a trust involved. There is an, a trust of Jesus Christ that is involved beyond it. And, th- and that's what is, is going on here. This man's faith has saved him. And that's why we should learn from the Samaritan leper. Now the applications flow directly from these things. The first is that we ought to, let's, if we can't learn from, from the one, let's at least learn from all ten of them, and, which is to humbly ask for mercy. Okay, that's a really good idea. That's a really useful thing, to humbly ask for mercy. We say they're in an advantage because they're in a leper colony. There's no more pretense, there's no more imagining that you're okay because obviously your face betrays the fact that you're a leper. Can I just say that before God, our, every part of us inside and out reveals that we're sinners? You know, we look, uh, I, I'm... You know, we some of us are in various kind of conditions and situations, but I would say as a whole, we're a pretty good-looking church. And I'm sure before the world as a whole, if someone came into this room and they, they looked at you all, they would say, ah, I can move. Let's imagine they were a social worker. Let's imagine they worked for the council. They'd look around and they'd say, I will have, I'll go somewhere else because these people look fine. And maybe the world themselves would say, these people look fine. And you could go to your houses, and you could say, these people look fine. But what does God say as he looks into your heart? Does he say that you're fine? Or does he see the disease of sin? Does he see the rebellion that's deep in your heart? All the ways in which you have not obeyed his holy law. Well... If you can believe what the Word of God says about you, even if you don't see it in yourself, let's at least do what those tin lepers do and ask for mercy. Just like that, that if you can't do anything else or remember anything else, if that's the highest level you get, just please do what all ten of them did, which is to cry out to the Lord Jesus for mercy. Secondly, I want us to learn from the Samaritan leper in particular that anyone can bring glory to God. Anyone can. Now, I want us to see that our, our culture today is not content with simply doing ordinary things. It's not content with simply putting food on the table, paying your taxes, raising the kids. That's generations past. All right? People today want to do something different. They want to change the world. All right? Now, other people in more sober judgments will say that they're pathologically narcissistic. All right? That just means to say they're too wrapped up in, uh, in, among themselves and they need to get over themselves. 
All right? But generally speaking, that is the idea. I don't just want to do the normal thing. Somehow I want to be the special one, the chosen one to change the world. Let me say there is one chosen one. He actually did change the world. His name is Jesus. You're not him. Okay? Now, it is good and right to have kingdom ambitions. And we ought to. I hope we do have kingdom ambitions. But the idea of you yourself being the agent of transformation for the whole culture is, is laughable. That's, that's not what God has called us to do. But let me say this on the other side, okay? It, so for, forget about being a game changer and a world transformer. That's, that's not what we're here for. But the problem is, on the other side, the problem is when people are so wrapped up in that idea that they think they cannot glorify God because they and the lives that they live are just so ordinary. A lot of Christians, because that, they are caught up in that too. And they think, look, I can't possibly glorify God in just some ordinary situation unless I'm actually a missionary in in Mongolia, there's no way I can glorify God. Well, that's rubbish as well, okay? That's not true. Uh, God doesn't expect us things that are impossible. And he tells every last one of us that we need to glorify God. And the lesson here is that a leper could bring glory to God. Okay? He, he, He did. It doesn't speak of his amazing qualifications. It doesn't speak of his being so well-placed in society that he, after, uh, after years he had finally gotten into a place where he could glorify God. His one qualification for, bring, for doing it was being a leper, having a need, actually, which God could fulfill. Now, I should say, by the way, that all ten lepers had this wonderful opportunity to glorify God, and I guess to some extent they did, because we today we say all ten of them were healed. But only one really made the self-conscious most of it. And he's our example. This leper could and did bring glory to God. And what I want to say is that whatever God has you doing, whatever situation you might be in, you can and you will bring glory to God if you're one of his people. Don't worry about that. The crucial issue is to be always looking and seeking opportunities day by day to do so. Okay? That's the crucial issue. It's not waiting in some sense, or trying to be something that you're not. And simply seeking to bring glory to God in the ordinary things day by day that we're called to do. You know, perhaps there was somebody who people might have thought in the time that they transformed the culture in Galilee. We don't know anything about him because Scripture has forgotten about it. It's this leper who is held up as an example because he glorified God, right? But... In a way, it's unexpected in our, in our worldly thinking, but in another way, it's not so unexpected, right? Because who makes for better material for the glory of God? Someone with a job title of transformational architect, there is such a thing, believe it or not. Okay, and if, I, if you go around saying, I'm a transformational architect, and you actually do something good, who are people going to thank? Who are people going to glorify? The transformational architect gets the glory, if you're just a leper and for maybe only the second time in all of human history God heals you who gets the glory God does God is well able to make use of ordinary people God is able to glorify himself in each and every one of us just because we're so ordinary well we should 
bring glory to God. Anyone can do it. That's what we learn from him. Thirdly, we ought to be thankful. Last time I pointed out, and you remember, I pointed out that God does not owe us anything. Does he, when he's done everything that he's called to do, does the master give him thanks? And the answer is no. I think not. Were we do every last thing that God commands, we would only say we are unprofitable servants. But it is far different. Far different for us receiving something from God. Just as he does not owe us a single bit of thanks, each and every last little thing that we receive, we ought to give thanks to God for. And we who are saved, we who are believers, ought to be profoundly thankful people. Day by day, living and rejoicing and giving thanks for all the the mercies and goodnesses of God. And we see, don't we, the heart of Jesus Christ when he encounters one who is not thankful, who should have been. It's abhorrent to him. What? Just this one? I thought there were ten who received my mercy, and yet they don't return to give thanks. Let it not be said of us. Look, for so many of us, our problem is that we're simply not thankful for the mercies that we already have. We're unmindful of them. Please, let us learn to be thankful. Young people, please, in a time of great plenty, you've given so much. All of us as parents struggle to not to, to, to spoil you, actually, rather than struggle to give you the necessities of life. Learn to be thankful for every little thing that God gives to you. And you will be a happy people. You will be joyful. That's the thing. It's a good thing for you. If you want to be bitter and unthankful, you can. You'll be miserable. God has designed us to be thankful, humble servants who are thankful to him for every little thing. And that is the way to joy and also to glorify God. So be thankful. And fourthly, finally and briefly, we ought to worship him because that's what this man did. You want to know what worship looks like? A leper realizing the goodness of God and coming to glorify him and thankful and falling down at the feet of Jesus in his heart and in his body and his voice, giving thanks to God, that is what worship looks like. And that we can learn from a Samaritan leper. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do return thanks and glory to you. You are good, and your word is good. It is powerful. It is a two-edged sword. It has the power both to break us down and to heal us. And how we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be those who seek mercy, not justice. How we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would, that we would come in faith and we would receive not only mercy but even grace from you, that we would be saved eternally as we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And having done so and having received such amazing things, that we would be profoundly thankful and that we would worship in our hearts as well as our voices. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.